The scripture reading for today comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Uh, you can follow along in your Bibles or page 7 of the worship guide. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Harrison. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Hope Chapel. And um, if I haven't met you before, I'd love to meet you. Um, I, uh, we've been going through the book of Romans. And typically, uh, when I begin a sermon... Um, I try to think of what question the passage is addressing, Um, a question that we uh, wrestle with and need God's wisdom on. And oftentimes, it's something kind of niche, like, um, you know, how do we be wise with our words? Um, But our passage today is addressing the question. If the Bible is true, uh, it's the biggest question of all of our lives. Is there a way for you and I to be right with God? Is there a way for you and I to be right with God? This question points out the problem from which all other problems arise for us as humans. Starting from the third chapter of Genesis that we have rebelled against and been alienated from our own creator and sustainer and lover who is meant to be the very purpose and center of our lives. C.S. Lewis says that uh, human history, money, Poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery is a long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God now which can make him happy. It's our biggest question. And yet, um, you may not think about this question that much. I want to suggest there's, there's three common reasons why uh, some of us may not think about this question much. Uh, first one is Romans 1 said that many of us uh, think we don't uh, know about this question when in reality we really do. We may think that in our heart of hearts, uh, I'm not totally sure God exists. And if he does, that he's all that mad about what I choose to do with my personal life. That's why I don't think about this question. I'm not even sure that it's a problem. But God in Romans 1, as we saw a few weeks ago, said, no, we do have enough information. We live in God's creation around thousands of his paintings and sculptures that tell us about who he is. And more than that, we are his creation uh, with his law written on our hearts that our conscience bears witness to and 
Instead of thanking God and loving him for giving us all of this, we suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and exchanged God and his love for us for created things that we loved in his place. We traded God for stuff. And it was very personal to him that we did that. It was deep betrayal and spiritual adultery on God, our spouse, and now his wrath is being manifested to all of us by him giving us up to our sin. Fine, have those idols. Have those created things and not me, God said. And now we experience the perversion that comes in our bodies and souls from bringing that kind of betrayal and darkness into our lives. So God concluded that all of us, whether we are distant from him or not, know more than enough to be without excuse and to not be right before him. That's the, the first common reason why we might not think about this question much, though we should. A second common reason uh, is that um, if you live in the South, you might take the answer for this question, to this question for granted. Of course I'm right with God. Uh, why, shouldn't, why wouldn't I be? I, I grew up in a Christian environment. I go to church. I'm not a serial killer or a terrorist. And I, I thought about that question when I was five and haven't really looked back. But I hope that you've gathered from Romans 2 uh, that God has the exact opposite assumption regarding that question for those who are religious. All of our external religious living, our Christian affiliation, our church attendance, our Bible reading, our teaching of the faith to others, if those externals are not met with real, full, internal repentance and holiness, they only increase God's wrath towards us. We are like serial adulterers who live uh, in the midst of a string of affairs, but who also teach a class on faithfulness and marriage. It doesn't help the situation. It only really makes it worse. We religious people, too, are left without excuse before God. That's the second reason we might think about the question. Uh, The third one, um, given all this, the third common reason many of us uh, may not think about this question is because in our shame... In our heart of hearts, we assume the answer is no. There is no way for me to be right before God, not really, not permanently. We go about our Christian lives full of guilt, overwhelmed by our sin, distant from God, who we view with only dread as a judge, and who we obey really only out of duty. And we make feeble attempts to please him, Please, God, that he might tolerate us a little more. But despite those attempts, if we're really honest, we expect on the last day that the verdict will be, depart from me, I never knew you. We feel helpless in the face of our own sinful selves. If this is you, you actually understand well Romans 1 through 3, but don't yet understand our passage today. So there's three common reasons why we don't think about our biggest problem Uh, The root of all of our other problems, we assume we're ignorant, but we're not. We assume we're right with God, but we aren't. Or we assume we can't be right with God when really we're about to read that there is a way. There's a valid way. But I wonder if you ever uh, tried to punch through a wall. Um, I haven't done this, but I've seen it attempted before. Um, uh, You can get through the drywall. Uh, It largely depends on if there's a stud there or not. Um, Seeing the stud version, you kind of want a stud finder before you angrily try and do this. Um, But imagine a a thick, towering wall of many layers, not of of drywall, but uh, layers of concrete, 
uh, rebar, steel beams, rock 10 feet thick and built of the strongest materials, many, many stories high, as high as you can see. Uh, This is the wall that Romans 3 left us with between us and God, erected by our sinful nature and sinful actions. You're on one side uh, in your slavery, your misery, your spiritual death, awaiting eternal punishment. God's on the other side. And imagine any efforts that you have of, of trying to do good is you punching at the concrete, trying to scrape it away with your fingernails and making no impact. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for me. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And now every mouth must be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. That's God's description, description of the 10-foot wall, 10-foot thick wall between us and him. But in our passage this morning, um, something so surprising, so lavish, so gracious, so excessive happens to our situation. A series of deafening explosions are heard, uh, meticulously placed charges sounding from the other side, and in a blinding flash of lights and dust, an area of the wall bursts out, and rock and debris fly everywhere, and when the dust settles, a large hole, a tunnel through the 10-foot wall appears. Our passage is the first, your first examination of this tunnel, this way in. So imagine walking up to it and noticing a few things about it. Uh, first, it's real. Second, it goes all the way through. Three, it's sturdy. And four, it's beautiful. It's real, it goes all the way through. It's sturdy and it's beautiful. God's goal in this passage, by describing this way, is to convince you that it's real and it's for you. Something so lavish and beautiful and gracious and excessive is actually true for you. God wants you to dare to believe that today in your bones. So before we dive in um, to, to looking at that, let's pray. God, we, many of us come in one of those categories where we don't think much about our deepest question and therefore we don't walk around in our heart of hearts and our bones carrying the answer to that question. We don't walk around as if we are fully justified in your sight and restored to you. Lord, I pray you would use this passage today to give us a renewed taste in our hearts of the utter joy that comes from being restored to our maker. And may it be a joy that we can take with us and hold in our hearts um, and something that we don't lose. Um, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we notice in this passage is that it's real. Um, this way is real. So uh, remember In our last passage, Paul just got done summarizing the manifestation of God's wrath. But then look in your bulletins at verse 21 of our passage. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there are two eras uh, Paul talks, often talks about, eras, um, two epics, uh, one in which the wrath of God and its manifestation uh, for us is the central focus, the defining characteristic. I think about this era as a raging river of rapids, uh, the wrath of God, and, and now Paul says this river runs into another era or epic, uh, one in which the righteousness of God and its manifestation is the defining and central characteristic. So that raging river of God's wrath hits a vast and powerful ocean, and the river becomes subsumed in this new era. That ocean is God's righteousness manifested in this new era. So what is uh, God's righteousness? Uh, here it has two meanings, two sides, like a two-sided ocean, uh, both of which Paul will refer to separately in this passage. Um, so with the first side of it, God, it's God's righteous character that is manifested for us, meaning his glory, his graciousness, his justness, his faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. His righteousness is shown forth. Meaning in this new era, we see a saving act so surprising and wonderful that we think, who is this God we have? What a God. But then the second side of this ocean the result of the saving act is we don't just see God's righteous character, we also see a clear way of being right with God ourselves. The righteousness of God manifested for us, a way into his acceptance. So it's both God's character and us being invited into that character that are shown forth and that dominate this new era. And this righteousness is manifested apart from the law. Uh, meaning it's, it's not us clawing our way through the 10-foot wall erected by our sin ourselves, but it's totally separate from that. And then verse 22, uh, Paul says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe means this way is not just open for Jews. It's not just open for Gentiles or for the good people or the religious people or the smart people. There's a sign above it that says anyone can come through here. No matter who you are or what you have done. Tax collector, prostitute, Roman soldier, Pharisee, persecutor of the church. This way is for you. And the first truth God has for us in this passage is that this way has manifested in reality. It's real. Do you know that, that it's real? Because it sounds too good to be true, right? Wait, God's righteousness for anyone with no regard to our past performance. But think about this. The same God who just spent five weeks being brutally honest with you about the exact depth and breadth and badness of your sin and the wrath stored up for you is the same God that is now showing you the ocean of his righteousness that he has shown forth to swallow that wrath. God is saying, you have seen my wrath, and now you will see my righteousness. And if you don't doubt the wrath, if you believe in the 10-foot thick wall, don't doubt the righteousness, the way through the wall, because they come from the same source. The same God teaches us about both of those things. 
So God's first telling us this way is real. But of course, if you're like me, there's a lot of other questions that come up before I can begin to believe that and make sense of that. And so the next is, how did God get through that wall? And as you look in, does that hole really go all the way through that wall? So look in verse 22b uh, here. Well, uh, God will talk about that. So, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So verse 22 and 23 affirm the presence and thickness of the wall I've been describing. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Glory meaning his powerful and holy presence that none of us can be in without being utterly destroyed because of our sin. So there is a barrier between us and God because of our sin. But verse 24, a way in has been created. It just goes to we are justified by his grace as a gift. So justify is a judicial term for a one-time act of a judge acquitting someone of all their charges uh, against them. So uh, this is referring to acquittal before God in his courtroom. Uh, remember Romans 3a said, in, in God's court, uh, you defendant are guilty. There's no excuse for you. It's time to be held accountable. But now Romans 3b, uh, you defendant are acquitted of everything. Justified, you're free to go. And the word here refers to a real verdict. This is not God acting as if you are acquitted, but you actually being acquitted legally before him. And the craziest thing is, it's present tense. You are acquitted now, which is shocking. Uh, Jews always believed this acquittal from God, if it came, would come on the last day in God's courtroom. But Paul is saying the verdict is in for all who believe you are justified. That verdict legally belongs to you today. Which would obviously be life-changing. But the question is, where did this verdict come from? It continues, by his grace as a gift. And the word grace means unmerited favor. Unmerited favor from God. Uh, grace is often misunderstood by modern Christians. Um, grace is not... God minimizing or lowering his standard for us. Um, you might hear, oh, God doesn't care all that much about what I choose to do with my personal life. He's gracious. But remember, uh, God just told us in Romans 1, he does care deeply about our personal choices because what we choose to do often happens to be deeply personal betrayal against him. And uh, he... Uh, is uh, what we choose to do manifests his wrath in that case. So grace is not him lowering his standards for us. It's also not um, God accepting our excuses for sin as valid. Um, you might hear someone say, well, God understands why I sinned the way I did. He knows my story. He knows about my parents. And he goes easy on me for these things. He's gracious. But remember, God just said in Romans 3 that he does understand your story it's actually God's very understanding of your story that removes all your excuses before him of your sin. Now, it's certainly true that uh, much sin has also been done to you in your life. And those who did that sin will also be accountable 
to God for what they did. But likewise, uh, you will also be accountable for what you have thought, said, and done. And for the sin in your life, God is saying there is no valid excuse. So if, if grace is not God lowering his standard or God accepting our excuses for sin, both of which, by the way, would help us to deserve that grace, then what is grace? Grace is totally undeserved, unmerited favor. It's God being fully clear-eyed about how many millions of miles you have fallen short of his glory and still inviting you into that glory. Still acting extravagantly favorable towards you, still showing abounding love towards you. Grace is therefore a gift to someone who does not deserve that gift. So the justified language means the way in, the tunnel, does in fact go all the way through the wall. Fully justified before God right now. And then the grace language means the construction of that tunnel started from God's side and it finished from God's side. God is the one who made the tunnel. And the, the next obvious question is, well, well how, did he, how did he do that? How, how, did, how did God get through this tunnel? So this is where we go to, uh, Paul says, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So redemption means a payment for freedom. Redemption is something that in Paul's time would happen to either if you're a slave, a prisoner of war, or a condemned criminal, someone could pay a price, usually a hefty price, uh, to free that person. This means uh, the way in was not free to build. It's uh, free for you as a slave and criminal, uh, but only because it was not free for someone else who paid for the creation of that way. And that person, Paul says, is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So this Greek word uh, propitiation is a reference to the Old Testament concept of the mercy seat. In the Old Testament, so despite the sins of the people, God dwelt with Israel, but had walls and veils and lots of structures in between. And in the inner room where God dwelt, the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and the ark had a cover over it called the mercy seat, where God was most present. And in order for God's presence to not consume everybody, um, Israel was commanded once a year during the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into this room, sprinkle the blood of a perfect sacrifice on the mercy seat, and by doing so, God's wrath would be poured out on the sacrifice instead of the people. And that would make atonement for the people. It would remove God's wrath from them. So the mercy seat was known as the place of atonement. Now get this. Uh, this verse is saying, the mercy seat that was hidden from everyone behind the veil has now been set forth, displayed publicly. God set forth the mercy seat, uh, both the place where God dwelt and the place the blood of the sacrifice was applied. And the mercy seat is Jesus Christ. He is our place of atonement, the dwelling of God, and the sacrifice of God in one spot. He is what the mercy seat was pointing to all along. So this means Jesus paid for this tunnel by his own blood as a perfect sacrifice that gives us the verdict of justified and acquitted. In fact, Jesus was so involved 
in the building in this way, that it is right to say, as Jesus does, that he is the way. He is the gate to get in. We are passing through him the place of atonement to get to the other side. So that's how God made that, that tunnel. And the last part we notice about this tunnel uh, is that it was made, verse 25, to be received by faith. This is actually by necessity since the whole tunnel was God's initiation, God's doing, God's act of unmerited favor, constructed, paid for by him. It must be received by something that doesn't involve us doing or working or meriting it at all. Logically, it can't. Our confession uh, summarizes many scriptures around faith and defines it as us receiving and resting upon Jesus alone for salvation. Receiving and resting upon Jesus alone for salvation. Faith is not a work. It's a ceasing from work. It's you accepting this gift, you resting on Jesus and collapsing onto him as your only hope. More than that, uh, we will see later that faith in Jesus itself is also a gift. It's something that God works in us by his initiation and doing. So imagine with this tunnel that God's made a little train cart for you that conveys you through it safely. Um, and actually, Jesus puts you in the cart and then, and then brings the cart through the tunnel. So you're not even walking through the tunnel yourself. That's the second thing uh, you notice about this tunnel is that it's built by God and His grace, started and finished from His side. It goes all the way through. It's full justification before God right now, and it was paid for and constructed by Jesus. His blood was the payment. Him as a sacrifice in our place, the place of atonement. So the next question uh, that you might have, though, is isn't this a little sketchy? Uh, Jesus, right, I don't know if you wonder this, Jesus making the payment for me, me getting the verdict, is that really just? In other words, is this way going to hold up as I pass through it? The next thing you notice uh, is that this way is actually really sturdy and well-supported. Look in in verse 25 uh, B. Paul says, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul is actually showing that Far from this tunnel calling into question God's justice, God's justice is actually vindicated by the tunnel. Because he says uh, in the Old Testament, God had passed over former sins. Passed over means uh, delayed right punishment for the sins of God's people in the Old Testament. What Paul means is that the animal sacrifices were actually not full exchanges. Uh, The payment in blood was not enough to atone for the sins of human people. If, if you think about it, um, a single physically unblemished animal in exchange for a spiritually blemished big group of humans is not necessarily an even exchange. There was a lack of equal weight in the exchange, which meant God was delaying the full punishment somehow. He was delaying it in his forbearance. But in the present time, Paul says, he has shown forth that he was able to pass over those sins because of a coming once for all, perfect, complete, full sacrifice who was God himself. And that sacrifice 
was more than enough payment for us in our sin. Remember in, a, in the God's wrath section, we, we said that it's one thing for you to step on an ant. Um, you might not feel much, you might not ruin your day. Uh, it's another thing to run over a squirrel. Um, you might feel a little more, okay? It's another thing entirely to run over a human being. All right, that might, that might mess up quite a while. Um, and it's another thing entirely for us to betray the God of the universe because there is a much bigger gap between God and us than us and the squirrel. God is of a totally different kind and weight than all of us creatures. But that weighty God, if he chose to give himself as a redemption payment by his blood for us little humans, and not just a weighty God, but a perfect, beautiful, righteous sacrifice that Jesus was, that payment is more than enough to actually pay for your freedom. Jesus Christ, God with us, is worthy to do this for you. His account is far greater than the debt you had accrued, and he still drained it all for you. And this means that the tunnel will not collapse as you go through it. God is way too good of a builder for that. It has thick, steel, unwavering support beams. So God... All right, so Paul says this is the only way God could be both just towards our sin and evil while also justifying you and I as sinners who offer no payment for ourselves. Our God is 100% just and 100% merciful without compromising on either one of those. Behold his righteousness. That's what this era is about. So this way in, uh, this tunnel is real. It goes all the way through there, and it's sturdy. And the last thing we're going to look at is that it's beautiful. Because you might wonder, if we receive grace by faith only, with no regard for our own works or performance, won't we become bad people? Another way to phrase this question is, uh, even if the tunnel works, is it kind of ugly? In verse uh, 27 through 31, Paul is giving three ways in which we notice the tunnel is beautiful. Uh, Three ways in which it answers actually fundamental human issues that plague all the other ways of justification we try to find. So first, um, it solves the the issue of human pride, uh, the human problem of pride. So look at verse uh, 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So uh, Pastor Tim Keller notes that we as humans have a tendency to draw lines based on some sort of performance between those we think are justified and those who are not. He has a really good uh, kind of summary of this drawing of lines that I'm just going to read for you. Um, He says, uh, The religious person draws line between those who have the truth and live by what it says, and those who do not. The pluralist, or someone who says there's a lot of different truths, uh, draws line between religious people who think they have the truth, and the pluralists who have the whole truth, which is that no religion has the whole truth. The new atheist draws line between the enlightened atheists and the uneducated and ignorant religious people who are the source of so much violence. The honest skeptic draws lines between honest skepticism 
and uh, dog, dogmatism of all sorts, both religious and secular. So honest skepticism and then dogmatism or people that think that they know truth. And then the, there are those who draw lines between the bigots who draw lines and the tolerant people who do not draw lines. It's a pretty good summary. So the drawing of lines based on any sort of performance creates pride in those who are on the right side of that by their performance. So wherever you draw the line, you, and, and he's naming that all of us do, you look down on those on the other side of your line. There's ugly pride that's inherent in the system. But notice that, that God here draws a line, but his line is beautiful because by nature it subverts human pride. God's line is faith in Christ which means only those who can affirm and fully embrace that they are not justified based on their performance are the only ones that are actually justified before God. So God's solution excludes boasting. It excludes pride. It excludes looking down on others. No human-made religious system offers anything close to this besides what God has made. It solves the issue of human pride. Second, uh, Paul says it's beautiful because it solves the human issue of partiality or favoring one kind of person over another. Look at verse 29. Or is, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So uh, many lines we draw in religions are based on a certain knowledge level or a certain human culture, or someone's birth or ethnicity, or someone's self-discipline, or ability to carry out various kinds of religious duties. Uh, these kinds of justification lines give preference for a certain kind of person. Maybe those who live in a certain area of the world, those with a certain personality type, those with a certain upbringing and education. But the beauty of God's way is that no one type of person is given preference. If resting in Jesus is the line, that means uh, Jews can come, Gentiles can come, kids can come, the mentally handicapped can come. The weakest of all of us, in fact, could be the very best at doing this. It's not partial towards anyone. And Paul says this impartiality reflects God the best because he is the God who made all peoples. He's not the God of the Western world or of the mentally abled or the physically disciplined or the educated which is why you see his church in every people group of the world, in every socioeconomic class. Faith in Jesus doesn't give preferences. So God's way solves this human issue of partiality. And lastly, uh, third, it's beautiful because it solves the human issue of us falling short of the law. Verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. So every other uh, justification line, when held to the standards of God, does not hold up. Think about it. Uh, because of what you've done, Romans 1 through 3, uh, no amount of us seeking justice or praying or pilgrimages or service will actually cause you to fulfill the law of God. First, you can't go back and erase your past. And second, you still fall short of his law every day, even on your best day. And so all these other human-made religious systems based on our performance still fall short of this law, which, by the way, is written on our hearts, and our conscience bears witness to it. And that means that deep 
true peace with God still eludes us in these human-made ways. But in God's way, you have a real tunnel that goes all the way through, which means peace with God in your heart is possible that surpasses understanding. Full acquittal before, before God is possible right now, such that you can be rightly convinced in your conscience and in your heart that you satisfy the requirements of the law because of the worthiness of Jesus. So Paul is saying, far from overthrowing the law, we are finally able to uphold the law by looking to Jesus in a way that doesn't make us prideful. So it solves that deep human problem too. So these are three of of many beautiful aspects of this way God's made. It, It creates humility, creates diversity, and it creates true peace with God. Now, I need a name. Um, Despite all these reasons from God, you still may feel in your heart of hearts reluctant to believe something so gracious and lavish as the cross of Jesus and the way it created could be offered for you. You may have believed it a long time ago, but no longer feel this truth. You may have heard it so much, it doesn't mean much to you anymore. And you might still go home feeling distant from God and ashamed maybe planning on trying harder so that God might tolerate you a little more. If this is you, I want to end with challenging us right now to do a thought exercise. Imagine uh, this tunnel through the wall is true for you today. Imagine after being separated by God by such a thick wall of sin that you are being put into this cart by Jesus. You're being led through this way he made for you And you're both coming out on the other side in God's country with God's full forgiveness and love declared over you irrevocably for eternity. And your sin and its condemnation and punishment are separated from you as far as the east is separated from the west. So imagine God saying your name and you knowing this peace with him without a shadow of doubt. When Think about you carrying that as you walk out of this building today that you are justified before your maker and lover and restored fully to union with him as a gift that no one can take away. As you imagine that reality, think how would that transform your emotional life at lunch today? Let me suggest that any shame and wallowing will be replaced with lightness and laughter and joy and gratitude. How would that transform your relationships of who you're eating lunch with today? People-pleasing, social anxiety, comparison are all gone. There's nothing left for you to prove to anyone or hide from. How would that transform your service of God? You go into a community group tonight, serving with the kids. Fearful, cold struggles to make God happy, gone. You already have the favor you sought in those actions before. Romans is going to go into exactly what living with this verdict should feel like and be like. Because believe it or not, God doesn't want you to just imagine this is real. He died so that you might live that reality today. 
He made this way so you might be justified before him as you sit in your seat right now and live a life of unspeakable joy as a result of that. Will you dare to believe that today? Because that is what faith is. Daring to believe this for ourselves. And that faith is a step that you must take every day. It's the beginning of the unraveling of everything bad in your life and the world. That faith step is the foundation of this community. We are a people who dare to believe this is true. I want to close with a poem by George Herbert, a solid Christian poet and priest in the church in England in the 17th century. He wrote this poem called Love, uh, describing his encounter with the the tunnel blown in the wall. It says this, um, Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. Love said, you must sit down and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. God's invitation to us in this passage is exactly what Herbert is describing. That you believe this tunnel, that you would avail yourself of the joy of sitting at God's table on his side of the wall and eating his feast. And that your heart would know in the deepest part true peace with its maker. Amen.